Well, if you'll take your Bible and turn with me to uh, Ephesians chapter 4, we'll continue our walk through this letter of the Apostle Paul. And we're about halfway there. All right, so chapter 4 begins uh, the, the second half of this letter, roughly in terms of the actual length of content, but very clearly and distinctively in terms of um, the, the, the content of the letter and, and what he begins to, to exhort us to do. So uh, chapter one, chapters 1 through 3 were a sort of a doctrinal foundation, if you will, of Christianity. So uh, we saw uh, from the beginning of, of chapter 1 where he begins to speak of the, the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ and he began to enumerate those things and celebrate those things. And he went on to talk to us in chapter 2 about the great grace of God in our lives by which we are saved. We've been saved by grace through faith in the work of Jesus Christ. And though we were spiritually dead, we've been made alive uh, with Christ. And, and that as he has saved us by grace through faith, he's placed us into a family, into a community of people that he has saved by grace through faith and and he's destroyed the divisions and uh, the walls of hostility and brought together Jew and Gentile that is every ethnic group on uh, the earth uh, who will bow the knee to Jesus Christ and, and follow him as their Lord we've been joined together into this global universal eternal family and he spoke at great length of that in chapter 2 and expanded on it some in chapter 3 even as he spoke of his own ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles and how God's wisdom in establishing this church was an announcement, if you will, to the cosmic spiritual powers in the heavenly places uh, that God was at work and that God would uh, win the day uh, and that the church of Jesus Christ would prevail. And so he's given us uh, these, these doctrinal foundations for Christian life in the first three chapters. And so chapters 4 through 6 then give the sort of practical outworking of those doctrinal truths. So if chapters 1 through 3 is this is what Christians believe fundamentally, then chapters 4 through 6 is this is how Christians live. This is how in light of the gospel that we believe, we live um, those things out. As an expression of that distinction, chapters 1 through 3 contained only one imperative verb. Remember, an imperative verb is, a, is spoken as a command. Do this. Don't do this. Right? The only imperative verb in chapters 1 through 3 was uh, in chapter 2, verse 11, where he said, Remember that at that time you Gentiles were separated from Christ. Right? Remember. That was the only imperative in the entire first three chapters of this book. Well, chapters 4 through 6 contained 39 imperatives. So the tone changes. We go from the foundational, objective, spiritual realities of what is true for Christians because of Jesus Christ and his work, and we turn to, here is how Christians live. These are the commitments that Christians make. This is the shape of the gospel in the life of his people. So the text of chapters 4 through 6 and the sermons based on them in these next couple of months will, will have a much more sort of exhortative feel. There's more of a, an imploring. Here is what you must do. Here is how you must live. And it is rich with ethical instruction and commands about how we as Christians are to live 
in light of the gospel that we believe. And if you think of the immediate context, um, where he just finished up right before uh, chapter 4 begins, where in chapters 2, verse 11, all the way up through the end of chapter 3, uh, he's been speaking of the, the church and the, the togetherness uh, that Christ has accomplished for, for his people, it makes sense that his very first exhortation, his very first area of command, here is how you must live, has to do with the unity of the church. So he's given at some length the sort of theological underpinnings of the church's unity. And now he begins to implore us to live out that unity, to express the unity that Christ has achieved. So the doctrinal foundation that he's taken pains to lay in chapters 2 and 3 now um, come to uh, inform the way that we must live and carry out that unity. And so let's read together. We're only going to cover six verses today. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Let me read these for you as you follow along, and then we'll break these verses down and see what the Lord has for us. Beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness with patience bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace there is one body and one spirit just as you are called to the one hope That belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. May God bless his word. So the first thing he exhorts us to do is to walk worthy. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. The repetitive language there for emphasis. This is how God has drawn you to himself and the life he has called you into. The calling with which you've been called. Walk in a manner worthy. The the theme of walking will recur throughout uh, most of the rest of this letter. You'll you'll find that verb uh, about walking the way that we walk right here. And again down in verse 17 of chapter 4. It repeats in chapter 5, verse 2, and verse 8, and verse 15. So Paul repeatedly uses this this metaphor of walking to describe the manner in which we live. It is the ongoing and habitual way that we conduct ourselves is the way that we walk. And indeed, he used that in a negative way to discuss our past. So back in chapter 2, verse 2, you may remember, he said there that um, we, he was speaking of being dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, right? So you used to live, you used to conduct yourselves according to the death, the spiritual death that came from your sin following the prince of the power of the air. And again in verse 10, in after we've been saved by grace through faith, he says we are his workmanship, Created 
by God, uh, excuse me, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So again, there's the walking metaphor to mean the way that we live. This should characterize our lives over time, right? It's not an incidental, we make a choice here and then we forget about it for a while and then we do it again later down the road. He is calling us to a way of ongoing habitual life and he wants our walking, our way of life, our, our behavior, our, our conduct to be worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Now the word, we need to think just for a moment about what it means and what it doesn't mean to be worthy. He's not here speaking about uh, our, whether or not we deserve the treatment we've received. He's not suggesting that based on the way we live, we may or may not prove to be worthy of God's grace to us, right? None of us is worthy. We were all spiritually dead and walking in trespasses and sins. That's how he characterized us earlier in the letter. None of us is worthy in that sense. What he's speaking of here is not our worthiness, but the worthiness of our calling. It's the worthiness of of where God has placed us, the the office, if you will, that God has bestowed upon us. You remember that he said that God has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. And now that we occupy that exalted place in Christ, we should conduct ourselves with the kind of care and deportment that befits our high station. We think of this in terms of those who hold positions of leadership and authority, even in government positions and things like that. There's a way that we, that we think of a person carrying himself or conducting himself in a way that is worthy of his office, right? And we're not so much speaking of this individual being a worthy person. We're talking about the worthiness of the office. And the worthiness of the office demands a certain kind of uh, conduct and, and care. It's a little bit like if you were to have an important guest in your home. If you find out that somebody that you greatly admire or respect is going to come to your house for dinner, you want the environment and the preparation to be fitting to honor such a guest. So you're going to make sure that the place has been well cleaned, that you've got your best dishes out to prepare the, to, to serve the meal on. You've looked up recipes and found the one that you know is going to be uh, 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 a pleasure to your guest, right? You've, you've done everything that you can to make your environment and what you're serving and yourself to be presentable and to be fitting, right? To be worthy of the sort of dignity of the guest that is coming to your house. And it, it's similar to that. He wants, he's calling us to, to make our lives worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Paul exhorts us to shape our life together in a manner that befits the glorious gospel, the miraculous achievement of Christ on the cross and the calling to be his people. And so we have to make sure, uh, or or to make sure that we have a sense of the the gravity uh, and the importance of the exhortation that we're considering this morning uh, regarding Christian unity, the high station of Christians who have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places is so important and such a place of honor that disunity and discord among fellow followers of Jesus is a disgrace to the church 
and a dishonor to Christ himself. This is how important it is in the mind of the Apostle Paul, and I trust in the mind of the Holy Spirit. This is how important it is that Christians live together in unity. If we don't, we disgrace the position that we've been given, seated in the heavenlies with Christ, and we dishonor Christ himself. So if it's that important, how do we do it? Right? The, the question, obviously, that we want to, to ask and understand, if Christian unity is of such importance, how do we cultivate it? Well, to answer that question, we have to answer two other questions that the text more directly addresses. And the, the questions are basically this. What is Christian unity based on? And what will Christian unity take? What will Christian unity take? So I hope you forgive me for doing this, but we're actually going to take the, the verses in reverse order from how they're presented to us uh, to look at the, the foundation, the basis of Christian unity first, which he explains in verses 4 through 6. And then we'll look at um, what it takes to live that unity out uh, in verses 1 through 3. What is unity based on is the first question to address. Well, Paul emphasizes in verses 4 through 6 that the fundamental oneness of Christ and his gospel. The fundamental oneness. Look there in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There are seven repetitions of one. Maybe we should hear that. Maybe we should pay attention to that. Maybe he really wants us to get this. Seven repetitions. There's one body. The church, right? He's placed us into one body that works together. There is one spirit. That is the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God. There's one hope to which we've been called. And again, this is not a hope of like a feeling of, I hope things work out. This is the certain and sure confidence of what he has called us to. There is one Lord. Jesus himself. There's one faith that is the content, the body of doctrine comprising the Christian gospel and the Christian faith. One baptism and one God and Father. All right, so seven ones. And in biblical literature, a lot of times seven is, is, is sort of a symbolic representation of fullness, of completeness, of wholeness. And so I think uh, that, that even in a, in a symbolic way, Paul may be trying to communicate to us the, the fullness in the unity of God and his, uh, and his gospel. Um, we can see in, in these verses the unity of the, of the triune God himself. Each person of the Trinity is here named. He says there's one spirit, right? the one who called us and gave us this unity. There's one Lord. Is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, whose death destroyed the hostility and, and removed the barriers among the varying people groups. And one God and Father, who's over all and through all and in all. Right? He's, he's transcendent, he's over all, and he's imminent. That is, he's through all and in all. He's in us, and maybe even there's a more broad view of seeing himself among, seeing God the Father being sort of among all that he's created. But Father, Son, Spirit are each uh, listed and, and named in this sort of sevenfold repetition of the oneness of the gospel. 
And so we see that the unity of the church then is sort of patterned after and founded upon the unity of the triune God. Just as Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct persons, yet one being, one in essence, one in substance, one in purpose, equally worthy of worship, right? Just as the triune God is distinct and yet one, so the people of God are to be distinct people, distinct persons, and yet one people in Christ. Whether baptism, by the way, where he says there's one baptism, whether he refers here to the ordinance of baptism in water or to uh, the Christian's baptism in the Holy Spirit, um, it's not entirely clear. He could mean either one of those. But both of them are, at any rate, closely connected. So when uh, the, the baptism of a confessing Christian is the public representation, the public testimony of his or her baptism into the Spirit, upon his conversion. So when a person trusts in Christ, the spirit, as it were, baptizes that person into the family of God. And our baptism, the, 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 the ordinance of baptism, is a public uh, presentation and representation of that very reality. So unclear whether Paul specifically has in mind water baptism or spirit baptism here, but they communicate uh, about the same reality. So... One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. So again, uh, there's a a theological truth and a spiritual reality reflected in these seven one statements. And that provides the foundation, the basis of the church's unity. So he kind of summarizes the theological reality, the theological foundation that he's given us in chapters 2 and 3 uh, in these, these seven repetitions of, of oneness. And so this oneness is a spiritual reality, right? It's, it's true. It's objectively true. He's already done this. Christ accomplished this unity, and it is true. But it has to be cultivated, And in fact, down in uh, verse 13 of chapter 4, he will say, and these are verses we'll look at next time, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So there is a sense in which this is already obtained by Christ's death on the cross. And there's another sense in which it is yet to be attained because we have to grow into it. And so as we seek to grow into the unity that Christ has accomplished for his people, we, uh, we turn to these next verses that will begin to express or explain for us what this looks like and, and what it takes. Unity isn't automatic, I think, is, is what's expressed here in that reality. Um, it requires us uh, to, to, to work for it, right? It requires us to be eager to maintain it. That's the language he uses in verse 3. Because what happens automatically is not drifting toward greater togetherness. It's we drift apart from one another. We, we, we drift toward splintering and, and divisions. That's what happens because we're fallen people and because we still have indwelling sin. We drift away from each other, not toward each other. And so we have to make choices that cultivate unity. We have to regard each other in ways that cultivate unity. We have to speak 
in ways that cultivate unity. We have to forgive in ways that cultivate unity. And so it's, that, it's this question of cultivating unity and what it's going to take to do that, uh, that verses 1 through 3 really help us flesh out. So let's look together again at those verses in some more detail. Verses 1 through 3. I'll read them for you one more time and then we'll I'll point out some things. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And here we go. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In those verses, really those two verses, verses 2 and 3, I find three characteristics, one capacity, and one commitment. Three characteristics, one capacity, and one commitment that will be necessary for us to cultivate unity within the church. So let's talk first about the characteristics that are necessary. Humility, gentleness, and patience. The first of those, humility. That's the very first thing that he says, right? With all humility. So as we think about relationships and unity within the church, we need to define these terms, these characteristics, with that kind of horizontal relational kind of understanding in mind. I I think that humility is a willingness to listen to another perspective, to not insist on our own way. There's a recognition that our beliefs and feelings on any given matter might not be as certain or accurate as we think. So it takes humility to say, I might be wrong. And without the humility to admit, I might be wrong about this, unity is not possible. People cannot relate to one another in a unified way when one or either or both parties insist on their own rightness, right? I refuse to acknowledge that I might be wrong. I see this right, you see it wrong, and that's just the way that it is. There can be no togetherness. There can be no cultivating of unity where that is the attitude. So we need humility. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. So the wise man would be the one that cultivates unity in the church because he's willing to listen to somebody else and willing to consider maybe the way that I see this or think about this is wrong. And maybe I should hear from someone else. And if everybody is doing that, then we could work together, right? You can, you can grow together when there's a, a shared, a mutual sense of humility, saying I'm not insisting that I'm the only one that sees this or understands this. I might be wrong. Gentleness, it's, pretty, it's closely related to humility for sure, but I, I think in terms of interpersonal kinds of relationships and interactions, gentleness is the absence of severity or you know roughness right the opposite of gentle is like forceful right sort of intimidating gentleness has a a a threshold if you will of sort of vigor and intensity that it that simply won't be crossed so in order to be gentle we have to sort of have a a governor of sorts of like i'll only get this high and then I'm backing off, right? 
And if we breach that, well, we're not, we're not being gentle, right? So raised voices or whatever, you know, pounding tables, those sorts of, those sorts of physical sort of gestures uh, communicate the opposite of gentleness. It communicates, um, I'm right, you need to listen to me, I need to get my way. That's really ultimately what a lack of gentleness communicates. So gentleness says, our relationship is more important to me than being proven right. The relationship is more important than being proven right. I'm willing to let something go for the sake of maintaining peace, true peace. Romans 12:18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And I like that verse. I find comfort in that verse because it recognizes it's not always possible, right? And it doesn't all depend on you. Because there's more than one person in a relationship. And I can't control the other person. So as far as it depends on me, <clears throat> live peaceably with, with all. So he calls us to this kind of... So maybe in terms of accountability, it's like, I need to make sure that I'm not the one <laughs> that is making unity impossible here. Right? There's a lowering of defenses, a lowering of sort of... Uh, attack mode and just a, a, a softness and a, a, a meekness that's required in order for unity to be cultivated. So humility, gentleness, and then the third characteristic is patience. Again, closely connected to these other two. Um, maybe the most basic way to state this is that patience represents a slowness to become angry. It should just take a lot to rattle us. If I'm easily set off, by something somebody says or does. can't believe you posted that on Facebook. I can't believe that guy. And I'm immediately mad, right? And now I'm making judgments about a person. Then maybe um, I'm not being very patient, right? There's a slowness to anger, a willingness even to allow time for understanding to grow, for perspectives to change, for peace to be cultivated. It doesn't happen quickly. So sometimes patience really just means waiting. And waiting in good faith and without grumbling and looking sideways at people. Let's give time to see how this develops. One of my favorite slash least favorite verses in the Bible, I think you know what I mean by that, is James 1.17, which says, Let every person be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Favorite, least favorite, meaning, man, that's good truth. And, man, that's hard truth to hear. <laughs> it's convicting. This is what our calling requires. We've been called to unity. We've been called as uh, the, the sons and daughters of God and brothers and sisters, therefore, of one another. We're seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Therefore, be humble, be gentle, be patient with one another or unity can be destroyed chipped away at so those are three characteristics that it takes to cultivate unity there's a capacity that it takes and that's this very next phrase he says in verse 2 bearing with one another in love we need to have or develop the capacity to bear with one another. 
closely connected to patience. Bearing with one another means that we have the capacity to endure relational challenge and hardship without just shutting down. That happens a lot in churches where there's something that's difficult or hurtful and I'm just going to walk away from this. I'm just done with it. That's not bearing with one another. That's We're writing each other off based on words or actions or attitudes. Bearing with one another in love means a refusal to dismiss someone or write them off because of a disagreement or a misunderstanding. We're going to work through this. Let's talk. To, if we don't understand each other, let's talk some more about it and seek understanding. If we understand each other and we just disagree... If it's a matter that we can disagree about in, in good faith, let's just allow each other to disagree and be okay with that. We don't disagree well in the church a lot of times. I think maybe it's because we're Americans, maybe it's just because we're sinners, but, but people have a hard time disagreeing and remaining sort of even friends. It's like, so our friend groups end up smaller and smaller and more exactly like I am all the time. Because if we disagree, I just, we just really can't, be, we really can't be friends. And I really think that bearing with one another in love requires the capacity to disagree and be okay with each other. We see this differently, and that's okay. Christians aren't asked to control one another. We're asked to love one another. Bearing with one another in love means a willingness to endure the immaturity of another, dare I say. Or to be inconvenienced or misunderstood without taking offense and certainly without seeking retaliation. Do can play at that game. And it must be said that the capacity to bear with one another cannot exist without its close companion, forgiveness. Because let's face it, we will fail each other. We will sin against each other. We will hurt each other. And when that happens, Christians must bend outward the forgiving grace we've received from God and extend it uh, to one another. Your relationships in the church should be the most resilient ones that you have. I wonder how often that is true of Christians generally in our day. The relationships you have in the church are the most resilient relationships you have. In other words, they can endure hardship. They can endure misunderstanding. They can endure hurt feelings and offense and survive it and grow through it and actually be the stronger because you've got that. You can look back on a relationship's history and go, man, we have been through some mess with each other, haven't we? Praise God for where we are. Your relationships in the church should be the most resilient relationships that you have. I fear that's often not the case. If they aren't, then our capacity to bear with one another is lacking. That's what it comes down to. We've got to develop, by God's grace at work in us, the capacity to bear with one another. Because our relationship should be more resilient than a harsh word or a disagreement on, in politics or something of the sort. We should be able to endure those kinds of things and grow through them with this bearing with one another capacity. So there's three characteristics 
and one capacity, and then the final thing is a commitment. There's a, there's a commitment that we have to make, and that is this, being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Being eager. That has to do with our mindset and our heart, right? That has to do with how important is unity to us. Because if I'm not eager to maintain it, then I won't. I won't maintain it. It'll fall apart. If we are not eager for it and seeking it and working actively and intentionally toward it, it will not happen. Now, I do want you to notice we're not called to create unity. He doesn't say being eager to create the unity of the Spirit. No, the unity is given. The unity is of the Spirit. It's the Spirit's unity, and it was purchased by Christ on the cross when he destroyed the dividing wall of hostility, right? So we're not called to create unity, but we're called to maintain it. That is, we've been given a gift. As though Christ has said to his church, here is a fundamental, unbreakable unity that I have purchased for you. The Spirit of God is now in you to live this out. Now, take care of it. Maintain it. Our actual unity in Christ is not in danger. But we because we cannot undo the work of God in our salvation, right? But our experience of that unity and our display of that unity are contingent upon our active cultivation and preservation of it. And we will only actively cultivate and preserve unity among ourselves to the extent that we are eager to maintain it. We must plead with God to instill an earnest desire for unity and make a gut-level commitment to do what is necessary to relate to one another in the body of Christ in ways that display our eternal fundamental connection with one another. As Christians, we are united to Christ and to each other and for eternity. So get used to it. If you don't like someone in the church, get over it quick because you're going to be spending a whole lot of time with them in God's eternal kingdom. So there's landmines all over the place. There's pitfalls and potholes that we could easily trip and fall into if we're not paying attention. There's a virtually endless list of things that can cause division in a church. Things that we might sinfully allow to break down our relationships and our Christ-purchased unity. I'm going to give you a few, at least, categories of things that might, um, that might cause divisions or be places where we can trip and, and damage our unity. One of those, and I, this, I say this first not because it's the biggest or most important, but because it's maybe the most obvious in this particular season, is politics. Politics and political affiliations and views and what candidates we support and what policies we abhor and all these kinds of things can provide sort of endless ground for just bickering and fodder for disagreement, right? Uh, that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it, right? Talk about politics, share your perspectives, learn from each other, even if you dare tell folks how you plan to vote. But for the sake of Christ, don't divide over it. Don't let political affiliations and decisions be a litmus test for fellowship. I see that happening all too often. I don't think I see it happening in, in our church necessarily, but as I look at the broader sort of evangelical landscape, political affiliations become this marker for like, are you a true believer or not? 
Absolutely not. Let's not go there. That is a landmine. Doctrine. Like secondary, even third level kind of doctrines. Um, the relationship between God's sovereignty and salvation and human responsibility. And how exactly we fit all that together. One Christian sees it this way, another Christian sees it this way. Don't totally see it the same way or understand it the same way. Okay. Differences in understanding about, you know, in times events and the timing of the rapture and is there a literal millennium and all those sorts of questions. Sometimes Christians feel really strongly about those things um, and even end up dividing over those matters. There's no need to divide over those matters. There are, let me just say this, there are times where doctrine does create necessary divisions for the sake of, of the, the, the purity of the gospel and, uh, the, and, the, the, and trusting uh, the truth of God's word. There's, time that, there's times and places where, well, if you're going to cross this line, I'm not sure that we can really be in fellowship with one another. So there's certain fundamental doctrines that, like, just to be a Christian, you really can't get these things messed up. Then there's a second level of doctrine that's like, you could disagree about this and still be a Christian, but it's going to make church life hard. You know, like, do we baptize infants or do we think that baptism is only for those who have uh, professed faith in Christ? Like, that's a, that's a difference that Christians can hold, but it makes church life hard if you disagree about that, right? So that's where denominations form around certain things like that. And I think that's okay. Then there's a level of doctrine, the ones I'm talking about here, that are not like, it doesn't even necessarily, it shouldn't make church life difficult to disagree about a third level doctrine. Um, so have discussions about that. Have Bible studies about that. If you can persuade somebody to your point of view, cool. That's fun. Sometimes that works. It doesn't often work, but sometimes it does. But if you can do that without destroying relationship, without going, oh, this person thinks this about the rapture, I can't be his friend anymore. Right? We should not dismiss one another or divide over those third level sort of doctrinal disagreements. Here's another one. Matters of conscience. Matters of conscience. And by that, I mean things that are not maybe directly, explicitly commanded or prohibited in the Bible. So when you get beyond clear command in Scripture, you start to veer into an area that really should be formed by uh, our consciences under the Lordship of Christ. And we should seek to inform our conscience. We should seek to study and know God's Word so that our conscience is better equipped. But even still, our consciences will differ from one another in a whole host of matters. The kinds of activities that are permissible on the Lord's day. Some think football is too far. Some think as long as it's received with thanksgiving, you know, it's, it's all good. Uh, the partaking of alcoholic beverages in moderation. I don't think any Christian should be in favor of drunkenness. But drinking in moderation, some think, you know, hey, Jesus' first miracle was turning water to wine. It doesn't seem to be like any moral problem with that. Other people think... Well, clearly Jesus' wine was non-alcoholic. I've actually read that position before, by the way. Um, so it's, it's a wisdom issue. Some people think it's just wise not to drink any alcohol at all at any time. And somebody else says, well, as long as I'm careful, I don't see why I shouldn't. It, and we can differ, right? Christians can differ on that. That's a matter of conscience. Which movies or, or TV shows or music should be enjoyed or avoided, right? These are areas where Christians are free to disagree. And it's fine. It's okay. And what you should do is follow your conscience. If your conscience says, don't watch that TV show, 
And this Christian's conscience says, I can receive that and be okay with that. All right, follow your conscience. And here's the, maybe the tricky part, respect the liberty of your brother or sister to follow theirs and to choose differently. So matters of conscience can become issues of, uh, of disagreement and, and tension if, we're not, if, we don't, if we don't afford one another the freedom to follow their conscience and have a different conscience on an issue than we do. Read Romans 14 a couple of times. Sin. How about this? Just plain sin and conflict. It's probably the biggest one. When we get hurt, our instinct is to build walls around our hearts, to put distance between ourselves and our offender, to shut ourselves off from each other. Right? That's what we do. You hurt me once, I'm backing off. Offenses between brothers and sisters either truly sinful offenses or those based on misunderstanding or misjudgment, I think there are both, are a playground for the enemy to complicate our relationships and to attempt to damage the unity of the church that Jesus Christ died to achieve. So if we're not willing to forgive each other, to offer forgiveness, and to seek forgiveness, right? At times, if I'm the offender, I should go and ask to be forgiven. I should acknowledge my wrong. We, we have to do that for each other. And if we don't, then unity is not going to be lived out. Which means, to go back to verse 1, we won't be walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Even, I could say, just preferences. Just preferences about church life and styles and this music or that music or, or whatever. There's, there's all kinds of sort of secondary things about church life that we can have opinions about. I prefer this, I prefer that. But if we allow those opinions and preferences to become sort of guideposts, you know, this is the direction I think the church needs to go, then we create a wedge, right? And, and now unity is impossible. So we need to be careful to guard against the breakdown of unity that comes when we idolize our own politics or doctrinal perspectives or our I have the right position on this matter of conscience, etc. And we need to be willing to forgive each other when we hurt one another. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So, I mean, plain and simple, this is what the Apostle calls us to here, and what the Spirit of God calls us to in these verses, is to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit among the people of God. And you know, just one final thought. It's not only like for our own good, for our own benefit. There is an outward reflection here that the unity of the church or disunity of the church will make upon the kingdom of God and upon the gospel of Christ. Our unity with each other doesn't only affect the strength of our fellowship and the health of our church, it also affects the validity of our witness. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. What is it? If you have love for one another. I think that's an expression of unity. That's an expression of this eager maintaining of unity with one another. And that's how the world knows. The world should be able to look at the church and go, wow, they must know Jesus. Or something's different about them because look how they care for one another. Look how they live together in, uh, in, in unity. Jesus himself prayed 
in John 17, the, the, the so-called high priestly prayer, John 17, 23, he prayed that his followers, quote, may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. That's what Jesus is praying to his father. The world will only know that I was sent by God to save humanity if my followers are one, if there's unity among the people of God. So we have the opportunity to, uh, to be the answer to Jesus' prayer, in a sense. Obviously, by the work of the Holy Spirit, by his grace in us, if we will cultivate, if we will intentionally protect and guard and build this unity with one another that Christ has purchased and that the Spirit of God has entrusted to us, then we can answer Jesus' prayer that we would be one so that the world might know. Thomas Manton said, divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. That's exactly right. When a non-Christian looks at Christians and sees arguing and hatred and misunderstanding and judgment, what, what in the world do they... Why in the world would they see that and go, yeah, I want that. Let, talk to me about what makes you the way that you are. <laughs> they might be going, so that I can stay far away from it, because I don't want that. But a united church, a church that loves and serves each other and cares for each other, a church that is humble and gentle and patient, a church that bears with one another through difficulties and misunderstandings and disagreements and various hardships and, and, and persists and survives and grows. That makes a difference. That makes a statement about Christ and his gospel. And may it be, by God's grace, the statement that our church makes to our community for his glory. Let me pray.